Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Vulnerabilities and Liabilities, we discuss a chapter from Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks. Today we're talking about Bell Hooks' 1994 book, Teaching to Transgress, specifically a chapter in that book which is called Building a Teaching Community. That's so much of the work that we've been doing in the past 15, 18 months and the work that we hope to continue to do, and so I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about it. I chose this chapter in Teaching to Transgress because... I mean, for maybe obvious reasons, because it's a dialogue between Bell Hooks and um, male professor Ron Scapp. And they talk a lot in that dialogue about their mutual commitment to equitable, inclusive, accessible learning environments and what that looks like for Bell Hooks as a black woman teaching largely at private institutions and what it looks like for Ron Scapp as a white man who's teaching at uh, public institutions that are largely uh, serving first-generation students. And so how can people with different identities be committed to the same goal? And so it's, you know, there's a lot that's of interest, I think, for the conversations that we've been having for this chapter, but I'm wondering, Steve, what you thought about this dialogue? Um, What struck you? The big idea that struck me the most, I guess, or what I was able to take away was that when they were talking about embodiment and have some faculty have bodies and some don't, I guess what I took that to mean was that there's this default idea of college professor and how the bodies of those professors pass without comment, right? If they're rumpled or unkempt or they're wearing their tweed vest and their pipe, you know, they're, they're just assumed to be like moving brains, that their embodiment doesn't matter. But everyone doesn't, if, if that's a luxury to, to not be embodied, everyone is not afforded that luxury. So some bodies somehow in the, in the academic space matter or have, are more implicated than other bodies might be. And I found this so interesting because we've spent the last year and a half being disembodied. Right. Right. Teaching in virtual spaces where, in some sense, all, many of the affordances of physical embodiment are gone. But the weight of physical embodiment is still present, even in virtual spaces. So what do I, what do I mean by this? And I should say this is me and, and not the reading saying this, but... One of the effective things about virtual environments now is that for many of us, we have cameras, we have audio, so I can see and hear the people I'm interacting with in these virtual spaces. So as a consequence, they they have race and gender and age and ethnicity and, and, and other physical traits. And all of these traits have their own sort of weight and significance historically, culturally, politically, socially. Right. But I, I, one of the affordances of physicality, right? We can't be in each other's presence. I, I can't eat a cookie with you, 
We can't sit in a circle in close physical proximity. We can't use proxemics to like signal closeness or distance. A large part of the, the dialogue was talking about that we read was talking about coming out from behind the podium as a faculty member and, and the, what that does yes. in the use of where I place my body in relation to the students. And so in virtual spaces, if, if, if I'm making, I'm trying to make this point that we get many of the minuses of embodiment because of the political consequences of embodiment, but we don't get many of the pluses of embodiment. And the pluses are those humanistic aspects of embodiment that are well, just gone. That's really interesting. That's a really good point. Right. Because when they talk about coming out from behind the podium, I have really profound memories of professors who were graceful or, you know, good physical comedians or really could move around the room in ways that made me feel like I was being attended to. Like, you know, they could come closer to me if I was making a point they were really listening to, right? And that doesn't, that may be inflected by identity categories from the census, but it's not um, restricted to it, right? That's not only available to certain categories. And so some of the so what you're suggesting is that some of our embodiment has kind of been flattened out to kind of census categories instead of other things about our bodies that may be more interesting and may allow us to build relationships in a nonverbal way, right? I think it's really um, easy for me as a white woman with tenure to share some vulnerabilities with my students, right? I mean, one of the things, so I wanna kind of set up like kind of three points on a timeline, right? So Ron Scapp talks about how as a white man, he is resisting participation in the privilege of just being a brain, right? You know, occupying this white male body and just being like, I don't even count, my body doesn't count, doesn't matter if my clothes are messy, I just am here to kind of be wise and give you knowledge, I embody the cultural stereotype of professor. And then maybe somewhere in the middle of that, of that graph, right, of privilege is my positionality as a white woman with tenure where I can share a vulnerability, but it doesn't, it can't come back to bite me. But our colleagues who are uh, precariously employed, or who are people of color, who are in fields where they're not, uh, where they are the only Latina, in fields where they're the only black person in their department, sharing a vulnerability can become a liability, right? And what do you think Bell Hooks has to say to us about that challenge. I think what she's what she's trying to do in this conversation, maybe, is to just challenge the idea that if I don't acknowledge these things, they don't exist or matter. And people who are in privileged positions have a responsibility to acknowledge them too. 
right? She talks about the white woman who wants to teach Toni Morrison but doesn't want to talk about race. She talks about the white students who take her class on African-American literature and want it to be just like, in every way, a class about white literature, which is to say, you know, metaphor, symbolism, character, setting, and no mention of race, racism, structures of power or history, because all that contextual stuff they didn't talk about in their Jane Austen class, right? Now, this is a 1994 book. I think that contextual stuff has really transformed our classrooms. So I think in some ways, we're seeing the ways in which that transformation has happened. Nevertheless, I think the point still holds, right? When we open up our practice to a more diverse student body, to a more diverse faculty body and to a more diverse curriculum, we also will need to experiment with our teaching. And that's something, and change our teaching practices to reflect the context that we're in now. And that's something that I wanted to talk with you about a little bit, because I thought that was a really fun part of their dialogue, where they said, you know, professors are happy to change their syllabus, they're happy to mix up the readings, but they're not interested in changing how they present the information. It's harder to think about, I'm struggling with this even in this conversation, what would this liberatory pedagogy look like? And also, they talk about how the students may not be accepting of a different way of teaching and learning. I asked students one time to draw something as an exercise in deep attention. And I had a rebellion. I'm not drawing. I don't know how to draw. Are you grading this? You know, I mean, it was just, I thought in the course of a 15 week semester, we could spend 10 minutes on a drawing as a way to call attention to how we pay attention. They felt that panic, right? We can't give up 10 minutes for this experiment. And so, you know, what did I learn? I learned that I hadn't really prepared them for the extent to which I was willing to play. And they didn't feel safe enough with the play, right? And so that experimenting takes a lot of community building right? It takes a lot of trust. So what's, what's, you know, to come back to this idea of, of presence, of physical presence, there are real shortcuts there, right? I'm going to light right. a candle. Let's have a cookie. Oh, I, I, I brought lollipops. Let's sit in a circle. So there are these just shortcuts I can do to like physically deconstruct what the traditional lecture, you know, or seminar room would look like. I observed a teacher years ago, and she brought in a big bag of Starburst, not a tube, but like a big bag of Starburst. And she said, okay, everyone just take a Starburst and keep the wrapper. Just, you can eat it, but keep track of your wrapper. Keep the wrapper by your desk. And then you know, 20 minutes into the class, she said, okay, everyone who picked the orange Starburst, you're in group one, the red, and that was the way they divided into groups that day. And the kids were so kind of delighted by the weirdness of that and laughing about like what kind of fool likes pink starburst like that became this whole riff and and then they had a project to do but they 
had this funky, unpredictable thing that they had in common, which is they all liked Orange Starburst, that kind of brought some joy into the group work, which was pretty substantial. You know, then they had to do this intellectual thing afterwards. It was delightful. You know, one of the things I, I struggled with with this dialogue, and even in, in the work that we've been doing, is the context both of my class the context of my class and how it fits into the larger university. So am I just a flake because my class is so different? Or do, do, do the students recognize that I'm a mindful practitioner trying to make changes to the institution of higher education through my teaching? And also they don't really go deeply into assessment in, in the dialogue, but that looms. Does it count? How will this be grading? I mean, this comes back to your draw a picture story. You know, in the context of draw a picture, what does that syllabus look like? Hey, you know, we have, I, I read 400 pages to come to class today. Uh, it took me six hours. I don't want to draw a picture. Let's talk about, right? So there's that. Right. That could be incredibly unfair, right? I mean, read of grammatology. Oh, we're drawing a picture today. One of the things um, that I wanted to talk to you about, I wanted to read you this little passage because I thought it was so interesting from Bell Hooks. And she talks about something that happened in her class at City College. So she says, last semester teaching at City College, I couldn't come to class one day. And I had a substitute come, a person who was much more a traditional thinker, a traditional authoritarian. And the students conformed for the most part to those pedagogical practices. When I returned, I asked, well, what happened in class? The students shared their perception that she'd really humiliated a student and used her power to silence that student. Well, what did you all say? I asked. They admitted that they had sat there silently. These revelations made me see that to some extent they saw me as dictating that they engage in liberatory practice so they complied. Just as, and now I've, I've, I'm not quoting anymore, they easily complied with the idea of professor as dictator, right? And so even having instituted liberatory practice in her classroom, it vanished when she vanished. And that really gets at, I think, what you were talking about a minute ago about your worry about context, right? Is it just like, oh, you know, Anne's class is really great. It's kind of flaky and weird. We draw sometimes. And, you know, as one class in the set of 32, it's interesting to have an oddball. Or is it participating in some kind of institutional transformation, right, that is, you know, diverse but coherent in some larger way? The students become confused around the prevalent notions of rigor, right? So do, does this, is this just easy? Do I, do, do I take this, you know, they, they wrestled with this word yeah. serious for, for a few, you know, for a, a good chunk of, of this section of their dialogue. And how do we convey seriousness and through playfulness or with playfulness? Do, do we get to use playfulness as a tool as serious people? And it's interesting both to interrogate the use, like what does it mean to be serious? What does play look like in an academic setting? Uh, I really struggle with that in my teaching. I thought about it a lot because uh, at one point I 
had as a kind of hypothesis that it wasn't a good class unless I had laughed. Like I wanted to laugh every class and I knew that I felt better about my classes when I laughed. So I really think learning is a deep, deep pleasure and laughter really matters to me in the classroom and I still believe in that. But I noticed that I was so interested in laughter that I hadn't sufficiently conveyed to my students how I believe laughter facilitates learning. And my students were in the same pickle that Bell Hooks is describing with, you know, with Ron Scapp here, is that they thought this class was really fun. And then I would be surprised that they hadn't learned something because they had kind of taken their foot off the gas. They thought this is fun and because it's fun, maybe I don't have to do the reading anymore. You know, and so I had to do some adjustments to keep the atmosphere that I believe in and continue to encourage them to read. And also just be explicit about that. Like, I'm still expecting you to do the reading. We're allowed to laugh in this room. This idea that there's some difference when I impose my preferences on the class to when someone else imposes their preferences on their class. You're being autocratic and I'm being liberatory because my preferences more closely align to what I think liberatory pedagogy looks like. So I remember I spoke to you some months ago now about that conversation I had with a colleague about, is it even possible to not make the class about me? That's such an ongoingly interesting question. I think the pandemic to just jump into our current circumstance has really caused a lot of us to interrogate our assessment practices, giving students different ways to express their knowledge, their understanding, their development. And I think that that's really valuable. And I think that's moving toward what Hooks is, is trying to describe in this discussion. Do students have the ability in the classes that we create to, to be agents? with regard to their own learning and the demonstration of that learning to choose how much they want to learn and what from what we're offering them. But, but again, this, this occurs in a broader context of, you know, grading and standardization. So I can say my class is not a competitive environment, but that doesn't mean that the university and the society at large is not a competitive environment. And I have colleagues who say, that's not even realistic. Like you're actually doing harm to your student by pretending that competition doesn't exist. Now, I don't, I don't believe that, but you know, we are operating in the context of a university where there are conflicting, not just competing, but conflicting visions of what a classroom environment should be. And you know, so that, I don't know how to help students see that in ways that won't just feel random and arbitrary. Yeah, I think that's a big challenge. I think the other thing too is that we can't assume that students are our allies in this structural change. Well, and one of the things I think about is, you know, given that I am the facilitator in the space, what are the legitimate reasons for me to have a certain kind of power authority role 
that's different from that of all the other students, right? I mean, it, you are, as the teacher, typically the unique person who has the ability to make certain decisions, even if you're very consultative. And so constantly asking myself, am I doing this just because I like power, just because I think it's fun? Am I wasting my students' time? Am I doing this because there's something I have learned in what I've read that I'd like to help them understand? The reason we're here is because we're in this class. And what is it supposed to accomplish? What are the, what are the learning goals? Yes. We need generalized agreement around those learning goals. And then they need my help, the students do, in developing pathways to reach those goals. And sometimes I'm just gonna have to tell them things. Mm, you don't wanna do it that way, you're better off doing it this way. Or I'm sorry, that's not true or accurate. It's more something like this. So, you know, that's really why I'm there. She came back again and again to rigor, even though she didn't use the word rigor, she wanted to be clear that, you know, my classes are no joke. They're hard, they're difficult, and they can be unpleasant, right? That, that learning is destabilizing. And for some people, the experience destabilization is deeply unpleasant and troubling. So that's gonna be part of this project. But I can respect our differences and our essential humanity and still meet the imperatives of this time that we spend together. And that I like about what she says. And I think it's funny too, to me, to read what she says about rigor without using that word, but what she says about, you know, kind of, and there's a little bit of protesting too much. It's a little bit, and it's a little bit more traditional than I would even have guessed bell hooks would be, which interested me because, yeah, you know, she, surprised by that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was too. I was too. Well, thank you so much. And this is a really good reading. I really enjoyed it. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Okay, so um, I hope that this inspires other people to pick up a little bit of Bell Hooks again because um, she's a great, she's a great person to think about teaching with. I think so. Thanks a lot. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes please visit our website, TwiceOverPodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TwiceOver1 or email us at TwiceOverPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.